As you know, we've been in a series called Living in Exile, and we're kind of going through the book of Daniel, and we're really talking about what it means to live in a culture that is not reflecting the values that we hold. How did Daniel do it? How can we do it? And we're living in a culture that very often views Christians, people who believe in one God, as we spoke of today in the creed, they, they view them kind of as oddities, maybe a, a little like a curious thing, like, like, wow, like you don't have sex until you're married? Wow, I, I didn't know you existed. <laughs> like a unicorn. It's like, a, it's, it's like sometimes they look at us like, oh, I don't understand this. But increasingly what is happening is that we're not just a, a unique kind of oddity, but we're moving towards a more aggressive stance that we're weird and sometimes even dangerous to society. And our views are creating a danger to progress within society. And I think when we think about this, we, we have to resolve that to live in a, an American culture today is to live as an exile. This is what Daniel was as he was carried off from Judah to Babylon the Church in Exile, which is a book by Lee Beach, which we've been kind of uh, looking at for uh, kind of some of our uh, extra material that, that, we're, that we're taking from. If you want to follow along with us, you can get that book. I think I would recommend it. It says, exile is the experience of knowing that one is an alien, and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. This sense of exile is experienced by anyone who feels alienated, cast adrift, or marginalized by their inability or unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. This is a powerful idea. We are exiles, but not in the way you might think of, like a, a refugee, uh, but, but like somebody who's displaced. But if you think about the way we have to function within this culture, the precarious state of feeling increasingly like we don't belong, that I think we could say we emotionally and spiritually and intellectually, we are exiles. Any quick trip through uh, Twitter, um, social media, cable news will remind you that we are out of step with the dominant views. <laughs> and this is the first time in the history of our nation that we've been experiencing that. And the answer is not to react by becoming even more relevant. Like we got to become more relevant to everything that's going on or by blending in or by reinterpreting the scriptures for our time. But instead, we have to do something else. If you go to the other extreme, we shouldn't back out of culture, uh, uh, like some kind of last resort where we enter a commune together and create our little bubble of Christian wonderment, right? That is not what we're called to do as believers, as God's people. If you look at both those extremes, what you find is that both of them cause the church of Jesus Christ to disappear, one because they, they become alienated and one because they just start blending in and they don't, they don't stick out as God's light in the darkness. Instead, what we've been talking about the last two weeks is we live as a creative minority. A creative minority who don't simply survive, but we learn how to thrive, how to adapt, how to innovate, how to live within our culture in a way that is truly uh, 
con- has convictions and we live true to our core. Author and pastor of Trinity Grace Church in New York City, John Tyson, he describes it this way. He says, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubborn, loyal relationships. (laughs) I want you to go ahead and underline those right there. We don't think like this very often, but stubborn, loyal relationships, because it requires a stubbornness to belong to a community. Stubborn, loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the healing and renewal of the world. (sighs) Sign me up for that. I, I want to provide healing and renewal in the world. In the last two weeks, we've been talking about this. If you want to catch up to the podcast, you can go to onechapel.com. But the question we want to ask today is, is it possible not just to avoid losing our convictions in the midst of our culture, as we spoke about last week, but instead to literally and intentionally influence our culture? Is that even possible? Is there a way forward for God's people with a redemptive purpose in living in the kind of culture we live in? How do we use our minority position to influence culture? How do we go against the stream and have influence in people's lives? How do we go, uh, go not, instead of going along with the masses, how do we, how do we reverse course and, and begin to be an influence in an innovative and creative way? Are we willing to risk everything? What resourcefulness do we have to rely on? I saw this little phrase this last week. It was really funny. And it was kind of a warning. When going along with the masses, be careful. Because sometimes the M is silent. In this election season, I just say amen. (laughs) I think Daniel had an answer for us. And so we need to look in Daniel chapter 2. Let's pray as we get into the scriptures. Father, would you make the words of God come alive? Your Holy Spirit speaking to us even now in these moments that we have together. Give us revelation and then give us grace that we may obey you and follow you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 2, the title of this passage is Nebuchadnezzar's Dream. Verse 2 says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. Now you remember that Nebuchadnezzar is the king over Babylon. So... The king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) Tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it. (laughs) Look what Nebuchadnezzar says. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what the dream was and interpret it, I will have to cut you into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Okay, getting right to the threats. (laughs) 
And there's, this, is, this is serious business. The king wants to know the dream. Verse 6, but if you tell me the dream and explain it, you receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. <laughs> you can see all the wise guys standing there, kind of shuffling. Um, yeah, so usually the way it works, king, is you tell us the dream and then we tell you the meaning. <laughs> Verse 7, he says, once more, let, me, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll interpret it. And then the king answered, I'm certain you're trying to gain time. Because you realize that this is what I have, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading or wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The bar's pretty high. The astrologers answered the king, there's no one on earth that can do what you're saying. <laughs> there's nobody on earth who can do what the king asked. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. I love that. It's really hard. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Oh, what a phrase. I just want to stop right here and pause and say, this is not reflective of what we believe as God's people. He actually does live among humans. And Jesus came to prove it. Jesus came into this world that we live in, into the brokenness and messiness of this world. He wasn't afraid of it. He wasn't threatened by it. He came into this world to live among us. And we, we, this is the kind of worldview that we hold together, the fundamental difference. Verse 12 says, this, is the, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Now, because if you recall from verse chapter 1, Around verse 17, it describes how incredibly smart and, and impressive that Daniel and his friends were. And they were put together with these other wise men. And so they were part of this group of people that were being indoctrinated and trained. They were entering into a three-year, almost brainwashing cultural process. And so, <clears throat> so where did we just end up? 14, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with, notice this, check this out, with wisdom and tact. If, you're, if you have your Bible, you should underline that. If you're looking at it on your device, you should highlight it. You highlight this, he spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time. What? So that he might interpret the dream for him. Now, I want you to, I want you to get what happens here. It's weird that the, that the king accuses the wise men of stalling for time, and Daniel goes in and gets more time. I think what we're seeing is the way that Daniel interacted with royalty, 
with the king, the way that he did it was as important as what he did. And we're seeing that he asks for more time that he might interpret the dream. He asked essentially for the same thing the other wise men asked for, but with different results. Verse 17, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from God, uh, the God of heaven, concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So, they, so Daniel calls his friends, and they call a prayer meeting, all-night prayer meeting. That's what they're doing. They're going to be in trouble. I want to ask you this. Do you, do you have anybody that you can call for an all-night prayer meeting? Do you have anybody that will cry out to God with you when you're in real trouble? If you don't, that's a very sad and terrible position to be in, and it's everything we want to overcome at one chapel. That's why you need a friend. You need friends who will cry out to God with you. You need to belong to a group that where you can share your fears and your struggle and what's going on and, and how you're trying to be destroyed by the enemy and his work. You need to cry out to God with someone else. This is what Daniel did. I don't know if you saw that. Did you see, watch the World Series Game 7 this week? Oh, my gosh. How many people watched Game 7 World Series? Yeah. See, that's why I got a 25 rating. So... It, everybody was watching games, and I don't know if you saw it, but the, 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 the cameras are panning the whole crowd, and what are people doing? <laughs> over and over again, you see them, their little cubby hats on. <laughs> it's so weird what we pray for. 108 years since they've even were on the World Series, and, and, and there's like this, this thing, and the whole town of Chicago is praying. I'm like, what could we do if people would actually pray for something that mattered? What, what are we, see, here's what you have to remember, is we're the only ones who are called, right? The people who know God personally. These are the people who must pray. We are the people who must dig in and pray and be people of prayer and communication with God. And there has to be a sense of urgency. And if there's anything that I want from this series to create in you is a sense of urgency because it is there. What's going on around you, what's going on in your life, what's going on in, in our culture, we have to have a sense of urgency. Don't let your life just roll along and suddenly there's a crisis and then you gotta go pray. There's a, <laughs> there's a football term, a football play, right? It's, 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 it's named the Hail Mary Pass. <laughs> it comes from a Catholic prayer. And what it essentially means is there's no chance this can happen. <laughs> There's no chance we're just gonna, we're gonna throw up a prayer and see if something happens. Another way to say it would be, we've tried everything else, I guess we'll try a prayer. You and I are not called to be those people. We're called to be people who will be praying friends. Praying friends. 
look what happened during the night the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said praise be to the name of God forever and ever wisdom and power are his he changes times and seasons he opposes kings and raises up others he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning he reveals deep and hidden things he knows what lies in darkness and light dwells within him I was talking to a guy this week about his language of prayer, how it wasn't, he's not sure how to pray. He feels awkward when he prays in front of people. Listen, people, all you got to do is go to passages like this and you just pray it. The best prayers you can pray are already found in the scriptures. And you pray them and you get them inside of you. Verse 23 says, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. That Daniel and his friends were worship warriors. They were prayer partners together. And God reveals the dream. And so verse 24, then Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. You can see him. Hold, hold up, hold up. I have it. I have it. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. And Ariok took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. And the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Watch Daniel's response. Look at Daniel's response. Daniel replied, no wise men, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. Daniel agrees with the wise men. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Oh. You're trying to figure out what to do with your career? There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. You're trying to figure out how to deal with your teenager? There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. <laughs> you trying to figure out how to deal with something, some person at work? There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, he says. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Notice what Daniel does here. He puts all of the emphasis on what God is doing and really none of it on him. I think if we could reflect that in our culture, there would be a, a, a way in which we interact that doesn't sound like we're judgmental or, or bigoted, but we are loving and we embrace what God is doing and not what we're doing, right? Like we're not full of ourselves, we're actually full of the revealer of mysteries, and I think sometimes we're trying to solve problems that culture doesn't actually want solved. We got to, you know, it's, well, it's important for us to understand that when we are operating within our culture, we have to be interested in what's going on in their lives. And sometimes they're not interested in Jesus because they have these other problems facing them. And we know that ultimately God coming into their life will be the answer, but sometimes the, the gateway 
to getting God into their life is to help them solve the problem they're facing that's most urgent. The pastors of our city, Christ Together, Greater Austin, they, they went through this process of asking city leaders, what are we going, what do you need for us to do? Sitting down with city leaders, what, do you, what would you like for the church to help you? And what are the problems of our city that we need to solve? And they talked about a whole bunch of them, but they, they came down on one big issue that deals with the future of our city. And you know what it was? Third grade reading. You can predict what's going to happen to a child if they go out of third grade without being able to read. You, there have been some studies done, and some of this has you know, been discussed, what, 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 kind of, what kind of prison beds we're going to need based on whether or not a kid knows how to read after third grade. Because if they don't know how to read, everything starts going downhill. Third grade reading is a problem in our city, in our culture. Now, One Chapel hasn't done real well at getting involved in this, but we're fixing to. And that means reading mentors. That means, that means being with a third grader every week and reading for 30 minutes. Him, uh, that third grader reading or you reading to that third grader. I want, I want to know, I want, to, I want us to be part of the solution. You're going to be hearing more about that. So he tells them, he tells them the dream, and, and we won't take time to look at all that. Drop down to 46, verse 46, but it's a, it's a dream that is incredible meaning for the future, and then it actually has a prophetic tone in, in it about God's kingdom coming and establishing uh, um, uh, over all kingdoms, that all kingdoms are, are transient and God's kingdom is the greatest. Verse 46 says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all his wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. This is incredible. King Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed with Daniel. He was so amazed that he promoted Daniel and his friends Daniel got influenced by the way that he interacted with King Nebuchadnezzar. We need to learn from Daniel's influence. Here's the, here's the first thing. Number one, here's what we can learn. We need to win the battle of identity. If you and I are going to be influencers in this culture, you've got to win the battle of identity. Who's, and the question about identity really is about the story of your life. What is your story, and do you believe the story of God intersecting with your life? Which story, which narrative, whose narrative will you believe? Whose narrative will you believe? Will you believe culture's narrative, or will you believe the scriptures? Will you believe who you're called to be, or will you believe... What's being taught to you in our culture? I'll give you an example. There's, Daniel would have been trained in, in the creation account within the scriptures. But he would have been then indoctrinated by the Babylonian creation account. And without going into too much detail, God's fighting with each other, tearing each other apart, creating the world out of this, uh, this, this violence 
and then, and then creating the sky and the land, and, and there was a god named Marduk, and he was like the, who was the master god. And, and in the, the sixth tablet of the Um, um, uh, um Elish, that's a, the Babylonian tablets that were found in the 1800s, here's what it says. Marduk, this god, this, he says, when Marduk heard the words of the gods, he, his heart prompted him, and he devised a cunning plan. He opened his mouth unto Ea, another god, and he spake that which he conceived in his heart, and he imparted unto him. And he said this. Check this out. This is what the god Marduk says. My blood will I take, and bone will I fashion. I will make man that man will create. I will create man who shall inhabit the earth, that the service of the gods may be established and that their shrines may be built. Together, humans shall they be oppressed and unto evil shall they live. I want you to think about this master God creating human beings to be easily manipulated into slave labor for the needs of the gods. That's essentially the story. That's the narrative. In or, and then later on in this story of this Babylonian creation story, in order to make sure that the gods don't have to pollute their hands too much with these human slaves, they create some elites within culture. Marduk makes high priests and kings and queens, the elite class, to be image bearers of those gods so they don't have to get their hands dirty. And so in the Babylonian creation account, there are those who are lower servants and those who's, who are elites and those whose role is to serve the elites and their gods. Daniel would have been forced to learn this story and to memorize it for the purpose of, of really changing the narrative of Daniel's own life because he would have been taught Genesis he would have been taught the Genesis account, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He would have been taught Genesis 1.27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. I want you to say blessed. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Daniel would have had to confront this thing that he'd learned as a child that God made all humans in his own image. He didn't make elites. And God created human beings to rule over his creation. He gave them a perfect place to live. He gave them a perfect home. He, he gave them something that, that he wanted them to be fruitful and multiply in. And so the, the question is, which narrative was Daniel going to believe? What's the narrative that you believe? Because the narrative you believe, the story you believe about who you are and where you came from will shape who you are and where you will go and how you will treat others. Daniel didn't compromise. He didn't give in to the cultural pressures. Daniel took the promises of God much like Abraham did in Genesis 15, 6. Look, God told Abraham a story. He said, go to a land that I'll show you. And, and he said, I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Here's what Abram said to the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord and it, he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham had a story and God was giving him a new story and he believed in it. He believed it and God said that was righteousness to him. Righteousness is not a church. It's not a worship service. 
It's not doing the right things. It's not holiness. It is believing the reality of Jesus and his story. It is believing the story of God for your own life. So whose reality will you embrace? John 8, 32 says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That word truth in the Greek is, is this word that means truth as it pertains to reality. Everybody say reality. So this verse can be translated this way. You will know reality and the reality will set you free. I think the problem is we listen to the cultural voices. We listen to the voice of sometimes of our our teachers or our parents or our media or our government or the, even the voice of Satan himself speaking into our lives. And they're telling us a lie that is not true. It's the wrong narrative. And so Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a, stare, but he, a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. I want God to move us from the snare of man to the position of his presence. This is what God wants so the question has to be asked, who are you? How do you answer that question? Here's who God says you are. Because influence, here's the thing, influence originates from knowing exactly who you are. If you know who you are, you have the power and the strength to influence. If you're insecure about who you are, if you don't know who, who God has made you to be, if you don't know what you have from God, you will be insecure in this culture. When the moment comes, John 15, 15, look what it says. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you, what does it say? It says friends. This is what Jesus said. I'm calling you friends because everything the Father, I've learned from the Father, I'm making known to you. First Peter 2, 9 says you're a chosen people. Hey, 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 hey. God chose you. He chose you. You're chosen. You didn't like skulk in the back door. Like I just barely got in. I don't know if God really likes me or not. No, he chose you. First John 3, 1 says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Do you live as an exile? Do you live in exile as a son or a slave? Which one? Do you live in exile as uh, one who has a father who cares about you and loves you or as one who has to be an indentured servant? The greatest influence on our identity, you know what it is? The love of our heavenly father. You gotta settle that thing. Settle the love of God in your life. He is not mad at you. He's not angry at you. You know why? Because he poured out all his wrath on Jesus. So all you and I are doing, the good news of the gospel is embracing what Jesus did. Pastor Raj, you don't know what I did this week. You don't know. I mean, God's mad at me. It was like the 115th time. Listen, God, if you will embrace, if you'll lean on Jesus, if you'll surrender to him, if you'll yield, repent of, of your foolishness and your mistakes, find, he will draw you to himself and he will find you as a, as a son or a daughter. Number two, fight for your, your integrity. The first thing that Daniel did is he won the battle for his identity, but the second thing he did was he was fighting for his integrity. The way he de dealt with the king was with wisdom and with tact. Daniel operated in a cultural and spiritual excellence. 
cultural and spiritual excellence. He knows how to speak to royalty. He knows how to speak that language. He's able to understand the literature. He's studied. That's why the king was so impressed because he didn't resist studying. He didn't resist the cultural process he was in, right? He, 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 he looked at it. He read it. He, he, he made allowances for the things that he was asked to do, like we talked about last week, like eating the king's food. He didn't want to do that, so he asked for permission to eat something different. And I want you to understand that he's, he's come to a level, probably this is almost three years in, this Daniel 2, three years into this process. And so he is he's elevated to a level of spiritual power and cultural respect. Daniel knows how to speak. He knows how to engage. And I think this is the problem for most Christians in our own society. You don't know how to talk to people. Most stories of flawed characters in the Bible are both, they're both, they're smart and anointed. <laughs> right, right, like, like, like they study, like Moses was really a studied person. Did you realize this? Moses was trained in the household of Pharaoh. He had a lot of smarts, but then he had to lean on God's power. <laughs> it happens over and over and over again. David was really a smart guy. He wrote he sang. He was an artist. He had so much that was in him, but it was God's hand on him that caused him to be able to lead, to kill the giant, to become the king. This is the, we gotta we gotta understand. Paul is the best example. He was really studied and. He relied on God's power. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I didn't come to you with really wise and persuasive words, but I come to you with the power of God, a demonstration of his power. But then in Acts 17, he's hanging out with all these people in Athens, and he starts quoting their little poems. He starts quoting Athenian poems to talk about God. Listen, the problem with you and I is we, we, can't, we can't just live here and then talk our own language. We have to be willing to have the conversation with people that they want to have. Most of you don't know how to defend your own faith because you haven't studied for it. I'll recommend a book I've recommended many times. It's called The Reason for God. The Reason for God by Tim Keller. I think it's one of the best. All right, running out of time. Here we go. I think all of us, our greatest influence, you know what it is? You know what our greatest influence area is? Is in our vocation and our relationships. Our vocation and our relationships. So here's some coaching on how to deal with your vocation, your job. Listen, you can either do your job as unto the Lord, or you can just work for the slob you work for. You can work for a guy that you despise and are so mad at and you're arguing. Or you can see that God has put you in a position of influence in a, a realm that has to do with your vocation. And you're there and that job, whatever it is, whether it's flipping burgers or whether it's working on a construction site, you are there as a representative of God. And it can either be a vocation God has called you to or something that tries to pay the bills. My vocational and relational influence, here it is. Number one, you gotta be faithful. Faithfulness. Faithfulness, don't be flaky. Say yes and mean it. When you say no, mean it. Keep a, hey, here's, a, here's an amazing idea. Keep a calendar. Keep a calendar. So many young people today, they don't even use their calendars. 
You can actually keep your commitments if you'll actually use a calendar. <laughs> it's really amazing. If you can't make it to an appointment, you should ask them to let you out of it. You should communicate with them. You should call them. You should ask for their permission. Hey, I'm so sorry. I don't, I don't think I can make this. Will you let me out of this and we can reschedule? That's the way you talk to people. There's a respect that you give them because you're, you're, not, just call, you're not just texting them five minutes before you meet. Oh, sorry, I can't make it. That happens, right? <laughs> and we kind of let it slide. God's people shouldn't be this way. Number two is encouragement. Celebrate the best in others. I think God's people should be the ones who encourage others. We should see the best in others. We should celebrate others. We should rejoice in the strength that others have. You know, everybody in some way is, is sort of, has this made in the image of God thing. They all have value. God wants to redeem them. If you know who you are, you can be confident to encourage others. If you're insecure with who you are, you tend to put others down. People love to be around others who encourage them. <laughs> Don't be Mr. Bad News. Don't be negative, Nelly. Don't be a suck up. Oh, I really like your shoes. Oh, yeah, I really love it. Come on, people. People can see right through that stuff. Don't suck up to your boss. Be thoughtful. Be articulate. Encourage with, with genuineness, with honesty. Number three, competence. Every one of us has to do a good job. You gotta learn a skill. You gotta continue growing and learning. Always couch yourself as the student. Be teachable, be correctable. Be willing to engage in the intellectual and cultural conversations that we're having. You need to be skilled enough. Develop yourself as a person. Read a book. <laughs> I, I, I can't stand it. So many people I'm talking to, yeah, I'm just not a reader. Listen. You, God, you're, you're in a culture that reads everything. I mean, they, now they read the internet more than anything else. <laughs> and you know, everything on the internet is true. <laughs> you and I have to be readers. Leaders are readers. We have to read. Our greatest influence, okay, so here we go. Here, last thing, and I'm just gonna breeze through this here. Surrender to the influence of God's presence. Here's what Daniel did. He got his friends together, and he started praying. He started worshiping. Our greatest influence comes from being in God's presence. I want the band to just come up now, and we're gonna come to the Lord's table. But I'm gonna give you these last three. Here it is, ready? Here's these last three things. The greatest influence in our lives actually comes from being filled up with God's presence. And we're gonna see that later in Daniel. We're gonna see how he created practices that made sure this was happening in his life because this kind of thing is rooted in a daily appointment with God. If you don't have a daily appointment with God, you're missing something. I love my wife, I like to be in her presence, but if I don't pay specific attention to her every day, our marriage goes off the rails. And frankly, same with her to me. We both want each other's attention because we love each other and we want to know what's going on inside of each other. Listen, solutions 
come from this. When you make a practice of an appointment with God every day, I'm about to go into 40 days of consecration myself with my Catalyst group. That's part of Catalyst 3. And we're about to go into 40 days of consecration. I'm making a new commitment to an every single day appointment with God. Because I think once you create the practice, it fills the rest of your life. Revealed by the Holy Spirit is the next thing. I think the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us. I think he wants to say things to us. Listen, the Holy Spirit is our greatest asset. Why? Because while everybody else is working with conventional wisdom, we're working with the creator of all things. The one who has access to the imagination of God. We have access to the imagination of God. Any problem you're trying to solve, any solution you need, when the deal goes south, guess what? The Holy Spirit might have a solution for you. You need to consult him. When the divorce is imminent, the Holy Spirit may have an answer for you. When the dreams of your business are dashed, the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you about it. When you feel like your teenager has finally stopped listening to you and there's no way you're going to get through, ask the Holy Spirit. You're going to need something to anchor your soul. This is the appointment with God and the work of the Holy Spirit finally released. This, this presence of God is supposed to be released through relationships and circumstances. Before your next deal that you're making, stop and pray. Next time you're trying to speak into your kids' lives, stop and ask God what he wants to say. Ask God what he thinks about your roommate before you haul off and yell at him. When you're really mad at your spouse, pause and pray because his presence is supposed to come out like that. We're not just called into our workplace. We're not just supposed to survive there or just in a utilitarian way share the gospel because God wants to use us. Rather, we are a creative minority, a community of people, and we're called to unleash the wisdom and the presence of God, the power of God in our communities, in our circumstances, in our relationships. Here, here's the four questions. I want you to close your eyes right now. Close your eyes, and we're going to pray. I want you to think about these questions. What are the promises of God that you hold on to? What promises do you hold on to? When do you spend time with God in his presence? When do you fill up on him? What cultures do you shape? Where do you actually have influence that you haven't really been acknowledging? Who do you value more? The opinions of others or the opinion of God? I want you to answer these questions and then I want you to come to the table that Jesus set for all of us. And I want you to see this table as a place where you can come and you can unburden yourself of some of the failures and the mistakes that you've made. And I want you to see it as a place where you can unload those burdens and then you can receive the grace and the mercy and the provision that God has for you. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for us on the cross. The cup represents his blood that was spilled for you and for me, for our forgiveness, for cleansing. I want you to come to this table and I want you to receive from him what he has for you.
Father, we pray that you would teach us, speak to us, call us to yourself, where you want us to go, what you want us to do, how you want us to be influential. Show us what that means. Reveal it to us. Help us to be your people. Help us not to just blend in. Speak to us about that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. We practice.